Okay, so let's see. The first thing we're going to do, we've got like a page, just a little over a page of scripted opening. Are you ready for scripted opening? I assume I just respond to your inane bullshit as always. <laughs> yes, that is correct. Let's go. <laughs> All right. John! John! I am verklempt. I'm, I'm just absolutely overcome. You, you do realize that we are recording our season finale? I know. Two seasons. Two more than anyone expected. I certainly did not expect two seasons. I did not expect to get beyond episode maybe two? I thought you'd be done with my bullshit at that point. You know, I am a patient person. <laughs> Lazy, maybe? How? Wait, 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 wait. Eric, I put a lot of work into these episodes i listened to at least four pieces of music for every <laughs> one of these okay i'm I'm gonna defend you are you ready for this i'm gonna defend you you listened to two albums for this episode full albums <laughs> i'm surprised you not have like a little bit of blood trickling out of your ears <laughs> at this point <laughs> well Today I got to listen to good music. Yeah, I you know, and you enjoyed it. You enjoyed it. I, I'm not wholly surprised. I mean, it is good music. Like Metallica, all the shit that, that I may occasionally talk, Metallica's first two albums are fucking great. They're great albums. So I'm glad. I'm really glad. I'm not glad about the fact that this is the last recording we're doing for the entire second season. Sunrise, sunset. We don't have the rights for that. We oh. better stop now. You, think, you go. You, you go think, any further, we're going to be sued. <laughs> you think so? Yes. Damn it. Well, look, we'll keep we'll keep it to that really short clip. Anyhow, despite the obvious midlife crisis implications of having reached yet another podcasting milestone, I also have the good fortune of being the bearer of some amount of good news. You want to hear it? I love good news. I thought you would. Now, obviously, after all of your chiding, this entire final episode of season two—it's about Metallica. Let's go! You did it! You you broke through. You broke me, basically, is what happened. And so here we are, on the brink of discussing two of Metallica's finest albums. So that's going to be very, very exciting. Now, there is actually a second bit of good news. Did you know that we have a guest today? I did know that, and I'm so excited that I get to actually talk yet again to an informed and intelligent expert on a topic. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I knew that you would enjoy that. We are we get to have this discussion with the extraordinary Ben Apatoff. He, he he wrote the book on Metallica. He did. I mean, he wrote all book on Metallica, but it's a really it's a really really good book on Metallica. Metallica, the twenty four ninety five book written by Ben Apatoff. He graciously agreed to come on here, and he is going to discuss with us the early history of Metallica from their formation through Ride the Lightning. So that is really fucking cool. You don't have to listen to just me make bullshit up off the top of my head. So why doesn't everyone out there in podcast land just sit back and enjoy John and my discussion about the early history of Metallica with the illustrious Mr. Ben Apatoff? John and I will see you on the other side for a few parting words of heartfelt wisdom with which we shall conclude this second season of Heavy Metal 101. For now, gonna kick some ass tonight. We got the metal madness. Hit the right, and let's do this fucking thing! Mein Damen und Herren, Mesdames et Messieurs, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming the wonderful Ben Apatoff to Heavy Metal 101. Thank you. 
My pleasure. Great to be here. Oh, we are absolutely thrilled to have you. My beloved co-host, John, is also in the house. John, how you doing? I'm great. I'm excited to talk to an actual expert again. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a whole big paradigm shift for you, right? You get to actually respect people with whom you're engaging in conversation. It's great. All right. Well, for those of you who may not be aware, Ben Apatoff is an author who wrote the absolutely magnificent Metallica, the 2495 book, a book which, quote, looks at Metallica's cultural significance with chapters devoted to each member, each album, touring, fashion, books, film, influences, fandom, history, and more. And if I may say so, the book does all of that incredibly well. Ben, I, I totally loved this book. Thank you so much. Great to hear. Thanks. Ben is here today to chit-chat with us about the early history of Metallica. John, we're talking about Metallica at last. It feels like it's finally time. It's like a homecoming of sorts, isn't it? Well, look, you know I know nothing about Metallica or metal in general, but when you ask me to name a band when you say heavy metal, Metallica is the only one my idiot pea brain can think of. So it's <laughs> nice that here at the end of our second season, we're finally talking about real metal. I've taken a lot of shit from you and also from my friend Usman that we haven't done anything of meaning on Metallica nearly two entire seasons into a heavy metal podcast. So I'm hoping you guys will leave me alone and stop annoying me after this. That's That that's definitely good. won't happen, but this is a good thing nevertheless. <laughs> All right, good, good. Well, so the goal today specifically is for us to just cover the formation of Metallica, sort of the earliest days through the release of the great, the mighty Ride the Lightning. So enter Metallica at long last. Just to be clear, Ben, you should probably know this. Though John is aware of the existence of Metallica, John, you literally listened to Ride the Lightning and Kill Em All for the first time, like this week, right? I listened to Ride the Lightning for the first time today, like an hour wow. ago. And I listened to Kill Em All yesterday for the first time. Ben, did you think you'd have the chance to talk to somebody with a completely fresh perspective on Metallica? I did not, but that's great because, I mean, I feel like there's so much to look forward to because, I mean, I remember like that huge rush of hearing those records for the first time, but they get so much better with every listen that uh, you've got so much to look forward to with Killmall and Ride the Lightning. Yeah, I, I should say just out of the gate, I did very much enjoy these records, which is unusual for me on this podcast. So I'm happy to be talking about this. <laughs> for, for anyone with, with a uh, familiarity with our back catalog, you will know that John has terrible taste in music. Just, just. <laughs> absolutely terrible and usually <laughs> usually usually doesn't like the material no, no, there are exceptions judas priest famously oh, is, yeah. is an exception but yeah john is not the proverbial metalhead but I, i'm honestly i'm not surprised i kind of thought that you would at very least enjoy metallica for their just general quality and effectiveness at doing what they do okay now before we actually get to our through line talk about metallica ben I understand that you are currently at work on a book about one of my very favorite bands, an entirely different band. Could you tell us about this new and exciting project you're currently working on? Uh, yeah, I'm writing the first ever book about Body Count. They're uh, one of my favorites. It's for the 33 and a third series, which writes about great albums. I've dreamt of writing for them for more than half my life, so it's a huge honor. I got to interview uh, the Body Count guys and a lot of other great musicians like Henry Rollins and Jello Biafra and the Living Color guys, Chuck D. Duff from Guns N' Roses. It's been really just a dream come true. Oh my gosh. 
That's so awesome. And I, I will say, I, I also, I love the 33 and a third books. I have a bunch of them. My room is a big pile of rock and metal books. And awesome. a number of those are 33 and a third. I actually have a body count anecdote. I attended the Metallica Guns N' Roses tour at Oakland wow. Stadium, the Day on the Green tour, that body count opened for. And it was awesome. It was an incredible show. But the specific anecdote that I have is that after body count set, while Metallica were playing, Ice-T, for whatever reason, was just kind of sitting at the front of this gigantic stage, and I was at the very front of the stadium, and I actually walked up to Ice-T while Metallica were playing and shook his hand and said, that was amazing. That's so cool. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Wow. He looked at me like I was a little 14-year-old asshole, but he did <laughs> shake my hand. He totally shook my hand, so I, yeah, I have that to take away from it. <laughs> that's awesome. That's uh, that, that tour just sounds like such a dream to me, too. I mean, I love GNR and Metallica and, and Body Count, obviously, so... Yeah, I've always dreamt of like what that show would have been like, because that's amazing. That was a really good one. That was an awesome tour. John, you're a Body Count fan, right? I have never heard of this band. <laughs> but in quickly Googling it while you were just talking about it, it looks like something that I might actually be interested in. I, I have this thing I might, I might call the Metallica rule, which is the basic idea that no matter how good a band is, they generally tend to get, especially well into their career, worse. There's very few exceptions in popular music. There are some, but generally bands get worse. Body count get better. I swear to God, I would say that the albums of the past few years are probably the, my favorite stuff that they've done. Bloodlust. I love Bloodlust. Yeah. Oh wow, what a great record. Yeah, and that's uh, that's something that comes up a lot in the story. Like I talked to Max Cavalera and Doc Coyle and Will Putney and the people on the new records. It's like, how did that happen? They just kind of rebooted and just updated their sound and got even better. That's a incredible story. It's awesome. It's so cool. With that Metallica, would do the same thing. Yeah, still, still holding on hope, but yeah. Meanwhile, before we get deep, deep, deep into the formative history of Metallica, we've got us a brief opening salvo of questions so that us and our lovely audience can get to know you, Ben, just a teeny bit better. So, the first question, what's your heavy metal origin story? Like, how did you get into all this? Well, you know, I grew up in the 90s and raised on the rock radio then, so like Pearl Jam and Green Day and things like that, and... I remember another kid bringing in vulgar display of power to school and me being like, wow, like this was just like, who are these people? It's like, I'm like anything I heard. And it wasn't my first metal CD, but I tend to think my metal kind of like breakthrough as a No More Tears by Ozzy, which I was just like, you know, I remember I could just like listen to it again and again and again. And it was really heavy, but also like accessible, like the 90s stuff. And, you know, and I got, I got really heavily into GNR and Metallica. And then I got into the bands that toured with them and I got into like the Suicidals and Living Color. And so I've, and then I've just branched out from stuff like that. That's awesome. All right, John, what do you got? The decision to write a book is a massive undertaking. What made you want to write about Metallica specifically? You know, it's a total cliche, but the truth is that I did not have the Metallica book that I wanted to read. There are like some things that kind of touched on it, but I want a book about why they mattered and what their songs mean and their influence. And one that wasn't just like, a fact book where you can look it up on the internet. I think what really pushed me into writing the Metallica book was I read something that Rob Sheffield wrote about the Beatles, where I'm going to paraphrase, but he said that for years, bands have sort of stylized themselves as the sort of like the badass alternative to the Beatles, like the Stones, Led Zeppelin, the Sex Pistols, like we're tougher, we're meaner, we're cooler than the Beatles, but nobody offends people as much as the Beatles. And to me, I was like, you know, someone needs to say that about Metallica, because for years, like, we're Megadeth, we're Pantera, we're Slayer, we're Black Metal, we're Death Metal, we're Heavier, we're Mina, we're Quill Metallica. None of those bands offend people as much or touch people as much. Like, they're still causing this huge debate and, you know, arguments. And 
I want to like show that, you know, the older they get, the more they seem to offend people. And I just, uh, I'm, I'm so fascinated by that, how they're still contentious and give us so much to argue about and think about and write about all these years. So I, I wanted to write that down. I genuinely love that as a motivation <laughs> that, that speaks to me deeply. I could definitely see that. Yeah, I mean, it is an amazing phenomenon. And you, I dare someone to post a, particularly a 21st century Metallica song on like any heavy metal group. Oh, you are yeah. going to get just absolutely flamed by so many people. Absolutely. Oh, my God. <laughs> Everything. Yeah. Posers, sellouts. No, it's the best one yet. It's every, every opinion, right? All right, John, you got the pointed final question. I'm very, very curious to see the response to this. All right. For the record, this feels like a rude question to ask someone like you, but it says... <laughs> it's not rude. You're rude. It feels a little rude. If, <laughs> if you're able to choose... What would you say is your favorite Metallica album and why? Boy, you know, a lot of people will be furious about me for saying this. I'm going to say because it started a, the class I taught and the thing that launched me the book deal, but the Black Album. It's just so much room for argument and discussion, and it's so heavy and so accessible. As a kid listening to those singles, that was my sort of gateway to them. You know, some days it's justice, some days it's kill them all. Sometimes I, I, I go back and forth between the first five, I'd say. But um, today I'll say the Black Album. So then on the flip side, if if you had to pick a least favorite album. <laughs> you know, it's a cliche to say St. Anger. But it'd be right. It would be right. That's true. <laughs> you know, um, I'm going to cheat a little bit. There are some, from the St. Anger session, they uh, record a bunch of Ramones covers that are so stale. And, you know, the Ramones have so much life to them. And you, you kind of hear, like, the magic of the Ramones, because, like, their songs are so simple, but, like, they have a chemistry that makes them work. And... Metallica in their St. Anger era, covering these sort of like Ramones single B-sides for a tribute album, and they just like devoid of magic in a way that like a great band covering a great band should not be. So yeah, I'd say St. Anger and also in, like in particular those those Ramones covers are just bad. Yeah. So basically everything within 100 yards of St. Anger was pretty Everything within 100 yards of St. Anger, <laughs> which I, as I found out when I wrote the book has a real following, which surprised me because I figured no one would defend it, but like... Younger fans are like, no, you don't understand. Like the unknown feeling is my jam. Like it's uh, it's it's been interesting to hear. Like some people who just found it at that right time and and, and love Saint Anger. That's fascinating. I'm taking a, a an aesthetics class right now. I'm getting my PhD. The class is called Bad Music, and so it's kind of a focus on this uh, this idea. And I think the simple truth of the matter is, if there is objectively no bad music, then there are going to be people who love Saint Anger. I mean, it's gonna, it's totally yeah. It's bound to happen. They're wrong. True. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not not a fan. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, actually, last time I saw Metallica, James introduced himself like, you know, does anyone like St. Anger? And like, the, like the audience reaction was like, problem. <laughs> someone was like, someone even shouted like, no, but I still love you. And like, <laughs> it, was just, you know. <laughs> it was a tough time for the band. They were they were very troubled. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Cool beans. So the time is here at last. After basically two complete seasons of constant nagging from John and also our mutual pal Usman, it is time for us to talk Metallica on Heavy Metal 101. We're going to do this thing chronologically. We're going to start at the very foundational moments of Metallica. So Ben, what can you tell us about the earliest origins of Metallica? However did these psychologically damaged weirdos first come <laughs> together to form arguably the most important heavy metal band of all time? 
Well, it's fascinating. You know, they're all such different people at the start. And, you know, James was in a few different bands and he had these songs with names like Handsome Ransom and Hades Ladies that lost the time. And he was like, I'm so embarrassed, but like I needed to write my songs. Like I couldn't play in the cover band because I wanted to write my own thing. And he meets Lars, who can barely drum, who's putting out ads in The Recycler, which is the newspaper that introduced Guns N' Roses to each other and Hole to each other. And James came over with, I believe, Ron McGovney, and they were like, is this a joke? Like, he can barely play the drums. But Lars, you know, kind of showing the skills they had later on, sort of hustled them into it. And he uh, was talking with Brian Slagle at Metal Blade, who was putting out the first Metal Massacre record. And he said, I have a band, save me a spot on it. And called back James and said, hey, if you want to be in a band with me, I can get you the spot on this record. And got him back. And yeah, you know, they had a sort of chemistry together. And they put hit the lights on that. And the rest, as they say, is history. The thing that amazes me about that is the fact that, for whatever reason, even the Metal Massacre, the first pressing of Hit the Lights, it's fully formed. It's obviously recorded poorly, it's sloppier, but it's the song, and it's it's the same song that opens up the first album. Oh, yeah. And I just, like, imagine, like, listening to those first nine songs, like, okay, some good, some bad, some, and then, like, the fade-in starts, and the very last song is Hit the Lights, and you're like, it's just like a whole new thing is coming. It's just incredible to hear. But, yeah, they barely had a band. You know, they got, you know, Lloyd Grant to record a solo, and they, uh, they didn't have Dave yet. It was really uh, just the barrel formation of a band, but they sound so powerful already and hit the lights. So, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe that James actually plays bass on that original recording instead of Ron McGovney. Yes, I believe that's right, yeah. So it's really just, a, I mean, it's basically Lars James, and then they just bring in, in this fascinating little Metallica footnote, Lloyd Grant. Yeah, Jamaican guitarist to play on it, and they re-record it a few times for the next compilations. So I think it was Tom G. War from Celtic Frost said, I bought both Metal Massacre 1 and 2, just so we could have both versions of Hit the Lights, because there's nothing that sounded anything like that anywhere else, and it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's it's from another planet, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, look, if Tom G. Warrior says good things about you, then oh, you're, yeah. you're, doing, <laughs> you're doing the right thing. Right, yeah. So, I do have the actual text from Lars's ad, which I love. So, this is from The Recycler. He wrote, Drummer looking for other metal musicians to jam with. Tigers of Pantang, Diamond Head, and Iron Maiden. I adore the fact that he starts off with Tigers of Pantang, of all bands. And that's Tigers with a Y, John. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, he was very into the new wave of British heavy metal. He had like a like a catalog that sent him new stuff. And one of his friends said it was like hanging out with Indiana Jones for new music, the way that he was just like obsessed with discovering new bands and inviting himself to hang out with Diamond Head and Motorhead. And just uh, he was uh, he was really hustling. So we have James Hatfield, who I think the formative thing in his background would be his the Christian scientist upbringing, which is pretty wacky. And then his mother died of cancer, refusing to get treatment. Yeah, and that's been a big inspiration in Metallica song lyrics, like the guy that failed. Yeah, his father left the family when he was 13. His mother died when he was 16. She would not get help. And yeah, he went to live with his stepbrothers and was this kind of loner without helping her parents. And he has stories about, you know, just going to church and kid would come with a broken arm and be like, you know, see, I'm all, I'm all healed. God's healing me. And they're just like, like, what is going on here? Yeah. And, and Lars had like a completely different upbringing where he had a dad who was like a, a public intellectual who played tennis in Denmark and got famous jazz guys to come over to his house. It was really just on opposite ends of the world and upbringings and everything. That those two guys would end up with the sort of musical chemistry they had is just the weirdest thing in the world. Oh, totally, yeah. May of 1981 would be when the two fellows first met, and Ron McGovney was, though he didn't play on that first recording, he was already kind of on the scene, right? He was in Leather Charm with James. Yeah. So he's floating around there, and he is going to be the first bass player for Metallica. And then there's this fellow named, uh, what is it, Dave uh, <laughs> Mustani? Yeah, uh, whatever happened to him, yeah. <laughs> I, it's too bad 
bad. Just a footnote in, in history. Oh, yeah. No, no one ever heard of him again. Actually, John, I'm curious. We, we joke here, but do you know who Dave Mustaine is? Does this, like, make any sense? Absolutely not. No, of course not. Come on, guys. It's such a fascinating story. I mean, it's it's like the Paradise Lost of Metal, right? Where he got cast out of Metallica and he was like, there are lead guitarists. And if you read like old reviews, they're all like, eh, band's all right, but like that guitarist is a star. Yeah, he was like the front man, essentially. Basically, yeah. He did all the stage banter. He had this great kind of like fiery red hair look. He's an incredible shredder, like a lot of chemistry and stage persona. And like weeks before they record their first record, they kicked him out. He's a violent alcoholic. And just like woke him up. We're like, sorry, we're sending you on a, a bus back home. Like, goodbye. And in the months after that, he formed Megadeth and was like their biggest rival for many years and was the leader. And he talked shit about them in the press and he kept, you know, competing with them. And he never got quite as big. But he, you know, he's like the leader of his different band, just like, you know, my band's going to kick Metallica's ass. And just like, it's like to this day, like a few weeks ago, he's still talking about Metallica in interviews. And I mean, he's had like an incredible career, but he just still has this kind of like, fire that you like can't let go of i mean that's the thing is that megadeth were definitely never quite as big as metallica but they were literally like the second biggest thrash metal band in the world yeah i mean something i say in the book is that you know people love to debate metallica versus megadeth and stuff like that but people also debate like metallica versus nirvana or metallica versus guns and roses nobody does that with megadeth right and megadeth is very metal niche it's very like you know megadeth versus slayer megadeth versus metallica but they're not like transcendent the way metallica are and i think that that just eats up dave in a way that he's he's very vocal about in interviews now i'm sure this will make dave feel much better my own first thrash album was so far so good so well oh, that's I, a classic yeah. yeah i remember taking it home and i was like okay this is this is the thrash stuff am i gonna find satan is it gonna warp my brain oh my god that that opening into the lungs of hell where like you know you're like what's going on here then suddenly like the, oh, the thrash comes in yeah <laughs> yeah oh, <laughs> so, so good, good. Oh, so good yeah yeah so i i absolutely adore megadeth i mean i love metallica they're obviously they're i mean look it, i think your point is a really good one <laughs> that well metallica versus nirvana as important cultural forces is a discussion people might have megadeth versus britney spears or whatever these just it doesn't it's not the kind of discussions people are going to have <laughs> We're going to start now. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. I want to lead this debate. That's how we're going to have the rest of the podcast, actually. Let's, we're just going to compare Megadeth to various popular media. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Dave would love that, yeah. Okay, one more bit of formative anecdote. So the name Metallica, do you have the origin story for like how they came across that name? Yeah. You know, Lars was supposedly uh, talking it over with a friend who was coming with him for his metal magazine. And the friend was like, you know, yes, think about calling Metallica. And Lars was like, oh, go with the other name. They took the name Metallica for that. Um, such a dick move. <laughs> such a dick move. But, uh, you know, there's some uh, debate origins. There's also an old New Info British heavy metal encyclopedia called Encyclopedia Metallica from the very, very early 80s, late 70s. And some people wonder if that's where it came from. But, yeah, it's kind of like a, an obscure term photo floating around that, that they mainstreamed. So before we sort of transition into beginning to get into like the albums and whatnot, I do want to take our first music listening break. And so what we're going to do is actually play the original Metal Massacre version of Hit the Lights. The first pressing, the one that's just basically primarily James and Lars, plus the solo courtesy of Lloyd Grant. So that's going to be in the show notes. So everybody should pause the podcast. If you've never heard it, I think it is really really important bit of Metallica history. It's kind of where it all begins. So you can click the link on the show notes and then come on back and we will talk more Metallica momentarily. Yeah! How about 
love them apples, everybody. What are our thoughts about this very earliest, roughest, rawest, but still pretty freaking good iteration of Metallica? I mean, it changed everything. I, I love that their first song is about hitting the lights. I like that, you know, the, the show's about to start, the dream's about to begin. And, you know, that that opening lyric, we're going to kick some ass tonight, which is like the biggest understatement of Metallica's career. <laughs> like, you know, just tonight we're going to kick ass, right? But <laughs> They're also writing about their fans, which I yeah. think is amazing. <laughs> and, and the word they use to describe the fans is, you know, they don't say whether their fans are smart or cool or tough. They say our fans are insane, which is such a great way to describe the fans. And it just changes everything. Slayer wrote Aggressive Perfector based on Hit the Lights. It's the first song on Metallica's first record. Uh, I, I love, uh, this just happened to me many times over the years, is playing that song for your punk friends who have no idea that they're going to like Metallica. We're just like, Metallica, that's, you know, it's a metal, it's not punk, it's so lame. But then you play them, kill them all. And like, they, that opened up Hit the Lights. Like, this is like Motorhead. It's like, it's such a thrashy, like hardcore song. Yeah, it's very cool. The thing that Kill Em All does best is its raw ferocity. And so these rougher, earlier versions, whether it's No Life to Leather or this, they're just, they, they work. They, I, oh, you totally, know, yeah. I don't, you know, I'm, demos don't always work. <laughs> but, but with Metallica, I think they, they work surprisingly well. Absolutely, yeah, that production works for that song, and uh, I think that production works very well for uh, for Kill em All and for No Let the Leather. Okay, so let's talk the rest of the formative prehistory of Metallica. we got to get the, the real classic lineup together. So where we're at right now, we've talked about, obviously, James and Lars meet. We've talked about Ron McGovney is currently, as, as we sit here, the bass player, which is, spoiler alert, not to last too terribly long. And then we've got the, of course, magnificent Dave Mustaine <laughs> shredding away, not as of that Hit the Lights Mal Massacre recording, but as of the early demos. So, all right, then obviously we've got to replace Ron McGovney. So how did that go? Well, they were kind of looking on replacing him for a while. He was feeling kind of left out of the band, like they were using him his, for his house and his car and stuff like that. And, you know, he was going to see Motley Crue, who were kind of like their rivals at the time, and like the kind of like the enemy style of music to them. And they were very taken with Cliff Burton, who was in Trauma. And they went to go see him. And he lived in San Francisco. And the crazy thing is that Metallica completely relocated. You know, they weren't a successful band at all then. They didn't have their first record out, but they were just moved from L.A. to San Francisco to get Cliff Burton to be the bassist. For a bass player. John's a bass player. Let's John, go. John, could you... Do, would you think that I would relocate across a gigantic state like California for you? I fully expect you to. <laughs> I mean, it turned out well for Metallica, right? So yeah. It worked out really well. I mean, obviously, Cliff Burton is more than just a bass player to Metallica. I mean, he's really the mentor. Of, I mean, he was like, what, like two years older or whatever. Yeah, he was a little older than them. He uh, had a lot of musical experience. He briefly went to college for music. He went to the same community college that Tom Hanks went to. And, you know, he was into classical music and these old interviews. He's talking about like R.E.M. and U2 before they're famous. Like, have you heard of these bands? And he's very musically knowledgeable and just like this total loner style where you'd have like bell bottoms and just like this kind of cowboy hat he just like didn't care what people thought about his you know fashion or clothes by all accounts a, ven a genuinely very sweet guy too and so it's a little esoteric but i think it's a worthwhile side note metallica recorded no life to leather which is kind of like the famous demo they have a bunch of garage demos and crap other than that but that's july 6 1982 now on the liner notes to that cliff burton is actually credited but it was, in fact, Ron McGovney who played bass on that album. Yes, yeah. So that's really right at that transition period where Cliff is joining the band, McGovney is out, and classic lineup is this much closer to being put together. No Life to Leather is pretty fascinating to me. The simple fact that it's literally just 
seven songs from Kill 'Em All. Again, we talk about the fully formed thing. It's rawer. They sound different. You got Mustaine instead of Hammett. And, and James's voice is really high. Yeah, yeah. Some people I know still think that it's Dave on vocals because he's got that high voice. I, I put that in my notes. It's amazing to me how much early James Hetfield, who sounds nothing like Dave Mustaine in his you know well-known voice, he sounds like Dave Mustaine. Yeah, and in like the pre-internet days, there's a lot of like bootlegs going around, like you know the Mustaine version, like and it is, and it's James singing, but he uh, it sounds a lot like Dave. Yeah, he's got that nasal quality. It's higher. It's pretty wacky. Yeah, and they were looking for a new singer for a long time, even after Kill 'Em All, right? Even after Kill 'em All, like up to Ride the Lightning, they were asking new people because uh, James wasn't that confident in his voice yet. Well, and also James is a freaking insanely gifted rhythm guitarist. Possibly the best. I mean, I think it could be argued. And so, although his vocals are very much Metallica, I get it. I understand why he would want to focus on guitar. And also, uh, although I'm not an Armored Saint fan particularly, like John Bush is a hell of a singer. Oh, dude, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think he would sound great in Metallica. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he sounded amazing in Anthrax, I think. Yeah, yeah, I love those anthrax records yeah john i feel like we're losing you with some of the esoterica 100 percent, no idea what's happening <laughs> but the important thing to know i mean you noted the vocals right on the metallica you've heard it's not like james hatfield is the singer to end all singers right yeah so I, was it james on both those yeah. first albums okay it ended up always being james, okay yeah. so that never took of course and it's probably for the best because metallica's metallica and, and it all worked out okay so getting signed Sort of, or at least the existence of Mega Force, and also the firing of Dave Mustaine. So they meet John Zazula first, or he reaches out to them, right? How, do, how does that all play out? Yeah, they were kind of a mom and pop organization, and the Zazulas, John and Marsha, who just both passed away in like the last like year or so, mortgaged their home to finance Kill 'em All, which like doesn't sound like it costs a lot to make, but they really just believed in this band and ended up paying off for them, and uh, they got like a good fortune to give them to Electra for Ride the Lightning. But it, yeah, it was a risk that really paid off for them. Yeah, but they also, you know, they also got signed in part because of the songs that Dave was writing with them and the way he was playing with them. And, you know, it was just, uh, you know, James has a quote, he says like, you know, we could see that Dave was on the way to like killing all of us. <laughs> he's not a stable human being. Even today, he's not a stable human being. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. I mean, he's such an exciting performer and player, but he uh, he would get into fist fights with them and, you know, he would pour beer on their amps and electrocute people. He would fight with people in the audience. Yeah, they went over uh, other guitarist tapes without telling him. And then just one morning, they woke him up. It took about 45 minutes, apparently. And they drove him over to Port Authority and sent him back to California. 40 years ago, uh, April 11th, actually. Oh, my. Oh, it's almost the anniversary of Mustaine being woken up, hung over, and fired. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine that. They were, they were so scared of him. They had to get him when he was tired still and just be like, you know, like, okay, like, still still sleepy. Put him on the bus and, like, doesn't know what hit him. So for more context, they're, of course, based in San Francisco because they've moved up to San Francisco for Cliff. John. Zazula apparently wired them money to hire a U-Haul, so they drive to New York in order to play some gigs, pretty much, and then eventually to record Kill 'Em All. So they have literally like just driven across the country. They've just played a gig like I think the night before. Yeah, yeah, they did. Yeah, yeah, and they're about to record their debut album, and that's the morning where they wake. They wake basically their leader up in some respects, or at least he probably thought of himself their leader. Yeah, and they uh, they threw him out. Yeah, and it's a, it's a morally dubious decision. You know, they kept some of his music. He was and like I I love Dave Mustaine as a songwriter and lyricist. He was not a great lyricist yet. Oh my God, mechanics, the lyrics to mechanics. Oh my God. Yeah, it's just like, yeah, he wrote all these kind of like horny songs that were just not, do not sound like Metallica songs. And uh, yeah, they knew that the music should be kept and the lyrics should not. And James wrote better lyrics for those songs. And, you know, I can see why he'd be furious about that. But 
yeah, they uh, rewrote them in a way that was more Metallica and they kicked him out. Yeah, so, John, the second song on Kill 'Em All, which is The Four Horsemen, for instance, used to be mm -hmm. a Dave Mustaine-penned Metallica song called Mechanics. And, of course, Four Horsemen is this sort of dramatic, fantastical story of the Four Horsemen and Apocalypse and all that. Mechanics is just about, it's just like a sex song with, like, car metaphors and stuff. <laughs> and, yeah, for years, Dave would introduce in concert. He's like, okay, you may think that this is their song, but this is my song. And, like, say, like, you know, you want to hear how they play it and, like, mess it up. And it's like, well, here's how I play it. Here's the real way to play it. You know, I've never met Dave Mustaine. But I feel like I've I've had Dave Mustaine's in my life. Those people who just you never quite know if they're just gonna like kill you. <laughs> like oh, yeah. <laughs> they're just gonna snap one. They're gonna be drunk. They're gonna do something really stupid, and it's gonna go drastically awry. I assume that's what Metallica. Yeah, were doing. I mean, you know, having watched twenty something years of Mustaine interviews, like sometimes he's perfectly fine, and sometimes he's just like you know, I didn't even get a second chance, and just like you know, you, you just you don't. You never know what you're going to go with them. But uh, yeah, I mean, the music is fantastic, though. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it really is. Okay, so Metallica have fired Dave Mustaine and driven him to the bus terminal with a Greyhound ticket. That must have been a really fun ride home. Yeah, oh, just <laughs> seething the whole way. Yeah, just plotting his revenge. Yeah. Yep, yep. And then who should they bring in? I think he flew on his own dime, if I recall correctly. But who should they fly in from San Francisco? It was Kirk Hammett from Exodus. They're listening to tapes from him. They called him on April Fool's Day, and he thought he was being kidded. You know, that was a joke. And uh, Exodus was really his band. He had pretty much founded them and, uh, you know, written a lot of the music. Now they're like a famous, they're not like Megadeth fans, but they're like a big cult. Yeah, they're like just outside of the big four. Exactly. They're like number five or six, you know, with, with like Testament, but um, an overkill. Oh, I can make a controversial statement. Yeah. I think the best thrash debut is not Kill Em All. I think the best thrash debut is Bonded by Blood. Interesting. Wow. Huh. That's that's a controversial statement. I know, I know. Switchboards are lighting up already. Oh, yeah. You're going to get some angry calls for that, yeah. <laughs> I will say that... For, I mean, I love all four of the big four very much. I'd say that Exodus are very well formed on Bonded by Blood and the way some of the other big four are not. They had like an extra year of whatever dicking around with labels and stuff to get their, their shtick together. But uh, yeah, they called up Perk and they got him over there. And apparently the first audition he uh, aced Seek and Destroy and they got him on the record. And John Zanzula apparently wanted him to replicate Dave's solos and he had to compromise that he's like, okay, I'll do the first couple notes, but you know, really make it mine. And yeah, they got uh, they got Kirk Hammett on, on their first record. And Dave had just nothing but good things to say about Kirk's performance. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh my god just like looking back like years you know he, he said he slept with kirk's girlfriend he said like he just like every every like cold thing and just kirk is just ripping off my solos yeah one really funny quote i saw from davis he said well you know what they're gonna be screwed when they run on my music that obviously didn't happen but... yeah because i mean master of puppets they were pretty much out of energy by then they had nothing going on at that point so in some respects kirk is probably my own favorite metallica member like as a person and his sound is just so i mean that's kind of true of all of them i suppose but his sound is so intrinsic to metallica's sound yeah i got especially close to kirk in my mind just like writing the book like he's such a like a nice guy a cool guy a horror fan a great test he's a great horror fan he's got one of the world's leading horror collections so um cool. that book is wonderful by the way he's got a book called too much horror business which is about his he's got one of the world's leading horror collections of like memorabilia and posters and action figures and he goes like through like really thoughtful in-depth detail about like the actors and the movies and things like that and he uh, donates it to um, some museum exhibits. He's got a book about the museum, too, that's that's very good, called It's Alive. And yeah, he talks about his sort of, like, abusive, neglectful childhood. And, like, you know, this was my sort of, like, escape. And he loved, like, seeing, you know, Frankenstein's monster and other creatures and King Kong break free from their chains. He's like, that's what I could do. And it's, uh, it's a really touching book about loving horror and, like, 
so detailed like the artwork is with such care i, I love that book so yeah kirk is kirk is the man he's awesome if i was going to hang out with someone in metallica it would most definitely be him but by all accounts a very nice stoner <laughs> if really yeah he's a really like chill like for a thrash metal shredding guitarist he's just a really chill laid-back guy all right. Well, at this point, we, we've got the band together. So we've got the classic lineup. We've got James Hetfield on voice and rhythm guitar. We've got Lars Ulrich on drums. We've got Kirk Hammett now shredding the lead guitar. And of course, we've got Cliff Burton as the musical mentor and bassist and writer of classical bits intersped in the rest of the material, at least after the first album when he starts doing more writing. So can I ask, before we get too much further down the road, when we get this sort of fun fundamental lineup about how old are these guys oh they're they're kids yeah i guess uh 19 and 20 so i guess cliff was 21 when kill them all came out and he's the oldest member of the bands and before him dave was the old man of the group they basically like kicked off their like their big older brother i think when they kicked him out he was the only one who could legally get them alcohol at the time yeah, he's buying them all their drinks and they they, they fired him anyway yeah they were uh, their kids okay now that the band is together, and really very shortly after this lineup comes together, so it's what, I think April 15th or something like that is the first gig they play with this complete lineup. So Kill 'Em All was recorded between May 10th and 27th, 1983 in beautiful Rochester, New York. Everyone's favorite summer destination. It was produced by a fellow named Paul Circio and was released by Johnny Z's Megaforce Records on July 25th of 1983. All right, so Ben, have you ever heard this album? Are you are you familiar with it? Kill 'em All actually is my first Metallica CD, I'll be honest. You know, I was a 90s kid, I grew up with like the, you know, the Black Album hits, but Kill 'em All was the first one that was available to me because I was dependent in those days on the um the five dollar section of the cd store the ucd store and so i found that in there and i'd read that kill mall was awesome that it was heavy and you know so i got it it was my first metallica cd and i loved it but the one thing i'll add is that i was too young to understand why someone who liked kill mall would not like the black album because i was like this is great it's heavy and it's fast and catchy just like the black album but like i had not yet met that sort of culture my band got too popular like you know now like posers like it to me it sounded good for the ways that enter sandman sounded good so i uh, but, I, but i loved kill mall absolutely i was just a couple of years older so i had gotten so far so good so what probably 88 or so and then like right after that was and justice for all and particularly the one video Video. Oh my god, so good. So yeah, so that was really my introduction to Metallica. My first real deep dive, I remember, was checking Ride the Lightning out of the library of all things. Oh wow, yeah. <laughs> Great resource. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't know when I finally came to Kill 'Em All. I mean, it wasn't, you know, it was pretty early on, but it was it was definitely after Ride the Lightning, Master of Puppets, and, and Justice for All for me. So it's a very different perspective, I think. So, John, you listened to Kill 'Em All. You have things to share. What do you what do you think? I mean, I liked this. I, I did. You know, one of the things that's always a sticking point for me when I listen to all of the music that we talk about on this podcast is the general quality of the singing. Ben, you don't know me. I come from a, a Western classical music tradition, and particularly I work a lot in opera. So the, the singing and the lyrical content is always kind of what hangs me up on most of this stuff. One of the things I really appreciated about this is just how little singing there is. <laughs> like... <laughs> the singing that's there is not super offensive, but early on in the show, we talked about the band Death. Oh, yeah. And I was... I was there and I was with it, and then they started singing, and I wanted to kill myself. I wanted to kill him too, actually, as a result of that. That's valid, but w with Kill 'em All, 
I really just was able to enjoy and appreciate the music and it was fun music to me. That's that's interesting. That's uh interesting that like there's not as much singing on that record. Yeah, I'm thinking like I remember when uh doing the book and reading about like how many people have covered Metallica, especially like Nothing Else Matters has like hundreds of versions. And I think part of that is that James, a little bit like why so many people cover like Bob Dylan or Leonard Cohen, where they're like, Oh, I could do better than that. I love James's voice, but I think a lot of people hear that, you know, he doesn't have like the most range. People are just like, oh, well, that, that's that's easy. But yeah, I think that he kind of makes people feel like they can sing as well as or if not better than him when they when they hear him. But what he does sing feels really appropriate. It's not like it's just bad singing. So we decided to have a small amount of it. It felt like contextually right for every song. Yeah, that's the thing. In, even though we talked about John Bush and we talked about the, the idea that they had of replacing him, James is the voice of Metallica. Whatever organic chemistry there is there, it just, it all it all fits real nicely together. Definitely, it is chemistry. And I will point out, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't James' mother an opera singer? She was, yeah. James's mother was an artist. She was a visual artist. She was an opera singer. His dad was kind of like a um, an outdoorsman. He's a frontier guy who's into like hunting and fishing and things like that. Yeah, his mom like painted pictures of, like the Aerosmith guys in James's room for him. And, you know, she's an opera singer. She was like uh, the sort of like the artist of the family that I think James looked up to. And she made him take piano lessons, which he did not like, although he credits it for sort of the way he learned his sort of musical sensibilities later on. So, yeah, she was an opera singer. That's right. All right. So quick sort of polling, favorite songs, least favorite songs, anything specifically, particularly interesting or exciting or not? on Kill em All. Boy, you know, I guess I do love Hit the Lights. I don't think I have a least favorite on Kill em All. I like every song on that record. I love Jump at the Fire is a great one. That's good. It's Metallica's Satan song. It's like the only Satan song Metallica wrote that I can think of. That's true, yeah. Yeah, and that's another one that Dave wrote early lyrics to that was about like a like a sex thing and it was just uh, <laughs> it was, it was not very good. Yeah, but I love Jump at the Fire. I love, God, I love Whiplash and, you know, Norm I mean, yeah, I, I love every second of Kill em All, I'll just be honest, yeah. How about you? So I have... A couple of things. Number one, I think that with one exception, side one of Kill 'em All is basically perfect. Like, I absolutely love side one of Kill 'em All. The exception, and I may be struck down by Metallica fans, and I want to say that I love Cliff Burton. I think oh, wow. I, I do I do not like Anastasia. I don't wow. I don't I don't like understand what You're value it adds. I'm the guy. I'm the guy. Yeah. I just yeah. even I liked that one, Eric. I know. I was so surprised when I when I heard that. I think it's gorgeous. It to me it's it's fun. it's not all right, let me let me rephrase that. It's not like it's ugly. I'm not trying to say like it's a piece of stupid crap or anything. I'm not I'm not saying that. To me, it's just it doesn't really serve any aesthetic function. It's like a nice little arpeggiated bass thingy and then it becomes like a studio jam session once Lars comes in. Yeah, it's like it's like it's like the eruption for bass players. I know it's not a quickly original thought, but I, I I love it. I love the way it sounds. You know, it's not my favorite release, but that scene in uh in S and M two when they get the classical music company and the guys all leave the stage and the cellist starts playing this beautiful forlorn piece that suddenly turns into anesthesia pulling teeth and it's just you hear that kind of like classical chops in it. I just like I love that. I love that song. Yeah, John, you liked Anastasia, right? I did. Yeah, and also I'll push back on not serving an aesthetic purpose. It's a big contrast where it's placed in the record to everything around it which is nice to create different levels and layers to the record overall i completely agree with that conceptually i would just argue that kill em all's shtick 
overall is that it's a big ball of fiery energy. So I, I would be okay without that, but I, I'll take your point. I'll take your point. It does serve that function. There's no, there's no question. All right, so I said side one is basically perfect, except I, I don't love uh, Anastasia. Side two to me, I mean, obviously has Seek and Destroy, which is like a stone classic. Right, yeah. None of the other songs are, um, they're all fine. I, none of them are bad. I don't think any of them are great. I think they're all good songs. They're all pretty. Uh, Phantom Lord to me is like an okay song. No Remorse and Metal Militia are both pretty good. I love those. I think it's a one of their perfect records. I, you know, I mean, obviously I wrote a book about them, so I obviously I'm going to be a fan. Yeah, I don't think you're alone in that. And again, I, I mean, I think it's a great album. I think it's arguably the first thrash album. I mean, Exciter's Metal Maniac is maybe in that discussion. I mean, there's a few things, but really in a meaningful sense, it's certainly the first fully realized thrash album and it's really freaking good i don't want to leave any other impression besides the fact it's really good of the original five i would take kill them all over the black album <laughs> but other than that it's my least favorite of them but that's just me and as we frequently find on this podcast you're completely wrong <laughs> almost almost exclusively so let's take one more of those musical pauses so that we can kind of get a sense you know for anyone who like john maybe wasn't well steeped in kill em all prior to this week and this is a really good opportunity to sort of compare and contrast the sort of raw yet in as we discussed pretty fully formed version of hit the lights that we found on metal massacre versus the opening track of the opening salvo of Metallica's real professional career, Hit the Lights, as performed by the classic lineup on Kill 'Em All. So, everybody, pause the podcast, click on the link on the show notes. If you're not familiar with this track, listen to it like 36 times, because it really is indispensable. <laughs> and we'll be back momentarily. Now, I dissed Kill Em All a little bit. I talked a little bit of trash, but that is a cool fucking song. John, you liked Hit The Lights. Yeah. I, generally, I liked that album a lot. Yeah. You're just you're a Metallica fan. You're going to get a tattoo <laughs> after this. So any Hit The Lights specific thoughts? Well, you know, um, I touched earlier about that, uh, starting their career with, you know, Turn Off The Lights and The Dream's About To Begin and uh, first song, first record, all that. And I love how they also sort of did the same thing when they reinvented themselves on the Black Album, right? They started with turning off the lights, you know, the Enter Sandman, just like, you know, Say Your Prayers Kid, you know, Sleep With One Eye Open. I mean, I, I went to that uh, the 40th anniversary Metallica show last year in San Francisco, and they opened with Hit the Lights. And just that fade in, which is such a rare thing on a metal record, and just like... Like, it was such a such a powerful moment. So uh, it's obviously it's like a studio thing, but that's one of the real differences of this version versus those earlier versions is you have that little that studio sort of sort of sound effect thing at the beginning that's really cool and weird and striking. Oh yeah, and I, I just remember like you know like hearing it sort of fade and just like wait, do I need to turn this up louder? And then like you know realizing oh this is about to get heavier than anything I've heard before. <laughs> just, uh, yeah, and you hear like you know you hear the start of like metalcore like convergent the jondro escape plan you hear that sort of like sludge like the melvins you hear like it's, i feel like so much gets birthed from that that song yeah it is definitely one of the sort of iconic moments in heavy metal history oh totally yeah and so hit the lights was actually uh, i believe james brought that with him from leather charm right yes uh, he did I mean, yeah. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. i don't know what the original version sounded like i know he and lars kind of reworked it yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah it's a hell of an opening okay so we've discussed how the band came together. We've discussed their wildly significant world-changing debut. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. 
how was this album received? Was Kill 'Em All like instantly super popular or? Yeah, it's definitely like a cult success then that's gone on to be bigger. I don't know who you'd compare it to today. It was like uh, the Cool Kids Metal record. It wasn't like, you know, as big as like a Motley Crue record or something like that, but it was an underground thing that people liked. So out the gate, they weren't Metallica. Yeah, I mean, they were playing clubs. They weren't on the radio yet or anything like that. John, do you have any other important pressing questions? No, that just that was my that was my one. So, John, John, can I move on now? Fucker, you okay? <laughs> sure. I don't have to. I know you're very attached to this album. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, in my opinion, the Metallica as we know it was really and truly born with the release of their second album, the utterly magnificent Ride the Lightning. As I said, I think Kill 'Em All is a really cool album. It's a really, really important album. But with Ride the Lightning, Metallica really create the first true thrash metal masterpiece. Of course, there's some people who feel like Metallica had sold out with Ride the Lightning, and we're no longer yeah. really a thrash band. I think that's a 15-year-old from 1984's opinion. Yeah, <laughs> but it's funny to read that because, like, now it's like an indisputable classic. But it's funny to look back at that time, and a lot of people were like, you know, uh, now they're they're different now. It's not not the same band, not as good. But it's a uh, yeah, it was a real grower for a lot of people. Ride the Lightning was Metallica's last release on Megaforce with a major label glories soon to come. It was recorded in, of all places, Denmark. This is where Metallica come face to face with one of my favorite bands in the whole world, Merciful Fate. You gotta see- yeah. Yeah. To me, the most important thing Metallica ever did was hang out with Merciful Fate. <laughs> just, just saw him for the first time recently on that tour. Oh, so, you got yeah, to see okay. him. Oh, I so didn't good. see yeah. him. I've seen King Diamond multiple times. I did not. The closest. So they came to Atlanta, which is about like five hours from here on a weeknight. Oh, <laughs> and I was man. like, I want, can I? It was just logistically, there was no possible way to do it. They'll, they'll be back, man. Ugh. They're they're here to stay. It sounds like yeah. I, I I am very 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 excited to see that. Okay, so it was recorded at Sweet Silence Studios between February twentieth and March fourteenth of nineteen eighty four, and released on July twenty seventh, nineteen eighty four. So the production is credited to the band, which is kind of interesting because it's early, but also very importantly Fleming Rasmussen, who would continue to work with Metallica for the remainder of the nineteen eighties for basically the rest of their unimpeachable eighties classics, and also Mark Whitaker, who then went on to produce Bonded by Blood. That's right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in 1985 from Exodus. So, John, I want to be really, really clear about this. You're a grown-ass man. That's correct. And yet, today was the first day you ever listened to Ride the Lightning. That is also correct. Didn't you say you knew one of the songs? I had heard For Whom the Bell Tolls before. Probably at like a sporting event or something. Seems possible, yeah. That's a great song. That's a great song, yeah. The album in its totality today was the first time. So I had assumed that you'd come on this podcast after having uh, listened to it, your hair would be long, you would have a tattoo prominently displayed, that you would be totally changed. But I feel like Ride the Lightning did not impact you in the same way Kill 'Em All did. So I'll say I liked Kill 'Em All more. Ride the Lightning was good. I'm not saying it was bad. I'm not saying I didn't like it. But the energy of Kill 'Em All was more appealing to me. The overall kind of just driving aesthetic and almost relentless quality of the album as a whole was more attractive to me. Ride the Lightning, it's funny to hear you guys talk about it because I'm sure for both of you, these are albums that are just like ingrained into you. But for me, I don't want to say it sounds like a different band, but there is definitely a different aesthetic in Ride the Lightning. There's a lot more of those acoustic elements and there are more songs on Ride the Lightning that just sort of end with a fade as opposed to coming to a conclusion. And these are little things to me that stand out that, again, not bad, but 
different. You know, it's funny you say that they're almost a different band because they really are. Because Kill Mall is written by pretty much by James, Dave, and Lars, with the exception of Anesthesia Pulling Teeth. But Ride the Lightning is written by Cliff, James, Lars, and Kirk. So they're like pretty much a different band at that point. And to be fair, like my initial reaction to Ride Lightning, which kind of like yours, where I was like, well, it's not, you know, it doesn't have the same kind of maintained energy as Kill 'em All. And, and I can relate to those kids who in the 80s were listening to Ride Lightning and thinking like, sell out. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I mean, obviously, I, it's a huge part of my life and I love it. But I remember when I first got Ride the Lightning being like, okay, well, it's not really like Kill 'em All or the Black Album. And I, uh, you know, it, it, it was a grower for me for sure. I guess it's just a little bit surprising to me, John, that you had that reaction. I totally understand it. I actually feel that way about a lot of music, that that raw, visceral energy is sometimes more interesting than polish and precision and all, and some of those other things. I mean, I guess part of it is that Ride the Lightning has more of what at least I associate as like the classic Metallica sound that would be the trio of Ride the Lightning, Master of Puppets, and Injustice for All. They all have a lot in common. I mean, they all share like literally the same album template in many respects. You don't have that background. And also, I did hear Ride the Lightning before I heard Kill 'Em All. So, you know, again, that's just a different perspective. But as much as I think you're dumb, you are not the only person in the world to prefer Kill 'Em All to Ride the Lightning. It's definitely not unheard of. <laughs> Again, they're both good. I enjoyed both of them, which is uh, rare for me. Ben, I don't think you appreciate the beautiful, <laughs> fleeting glimpse of John saying something is good. <laughs> you, you know what, though? But that's like part of the magic of Metallica is that they do have that kind of crossover. And like, you know, you talk to people about writing about them or stuff like, yeah, I'm not, not really a metal person, but I love Metallica. And they, you know, it's it's the same way, like, yeah, I don't love country, but I love Johnny Cash, right? Or, yeah, not really a reggae guy, mm -hmm. but I love Bob Marley, right? It's like, they're, they're right. that kind of like crossover band like that. So I think it makes sense. Yeah, look, Metallica are not my favorite band, but Metallica are a really good fucking band. Or... All right, I'm going to be a dick now. Metallica were a really good fucking band. I would be lying to myself if I said I thought Metallica currently are a good band, but they were incredible. The classic Metallica is unimpeachable. And I know some people love contemporary Metallica, and, and by contemporary I mean everything after the Black Album. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. Although, obviously, there's a, there's a material difference between everything after Death Magnetic and everything between the Black Album and Death Magnetic. But yeah, they're a band that is, or at least was, amazing. And there's, there's no questioning it. So, Ride the Lightning. It's probably worth noting, because I'm a huge Stephen King fan, that this idea came from The Stand. Yes, he's had an incredible influence on metal with, like, Anthrax and stuff like that. But, um... Yeah, it's a line from, uh, it's, it means getting the electric chair, and it's a line that Kirk found in, uh, in The Stand. Ah, Kirk. Yeah, Kirk is a big Stephen King fan. Yeah, well, of course, of course. How could he not be? So we're not going to get into the Master of Puppets era and beyond. Terrible spoiler alert. Of course, Cliff Burton is going to pass away in a terrible bus accident on the Master of Puppets tour. But this is the album where you can really, you know, as you said, other than Anastasia, Cliff didn't do any writing for Kill 'Em All. Right. Cliff's influence is all over this album, I think. Yeah, yeah. Call the Cthulhu. Um, he was the H.P. Lovecraft fan, and he uh, got them to that. Yeah, his his writing is all over it. It's uh, you can you can really hear more Cliff on this record. And of course, this album introduces the ballad. As a kid, I loved Fade to Black. As an adult, I think it might be my favorite Metallica song. It's like, I really, really love that song. Yeah, that's an absolutely great song. It's just, just, it's so different and it's so powerful and just, just so much good. I absolutely love uh, Fade to Black. I love the fact that it was inspired, right, by them getting their equipment stolen. Yeah, yeah, right? <laughs> it's, um... The funny thing about that, too, is their their equipment got stolen and, you know, they were feeling disheartened and James wrote that song and they stole all the equipment, but the one thing they left on the bus 
was the box of Metallica shirts, which today would be <laughs> would be the most expensive thing in that car, like by far, like they'll go like you know five digits. But yeah, just uh, they uh, the, the the thieves were like, yeah, that's gonna you know doesn't cost anything. So <laughs> I mean, it does say something about their age and whatnot. I mean, it's a beautiful, timeless song. It's a like sort of a suicide. You know, contemplation of suicide song, but of course it's about like losing your gear, which I'm sure was like, oh my god, what the hell are we gonna do? Oh yeah, and like you know, there was something that James had like something that his mom had given him in there, and like so they were they're all upset. Mm. Yeah, and like the you know the last time I saw Metallica, like they played Fade the Black, and you know James gave a short speech and says like you know by the way, if you're feeling those things, get help. We love you. We made it through the and just you know he can kind of like uh it's so for interpretation that he can talk to people who are feeling like you know down or suicidal and and just and don't relate to getting their equipment stolen but it's so uh it's so open for interpretation and i think that's part of what makes it such a beautiful song yeah absolutely all right so i you know we don't need to go song by song or anything but any thoughts on any specific songs other songs on ride the lightning you know it's interesting you brought for whom the bell tolls and you, know, you said you've probably heard it like sports games and things like that because i remember growing up in the 90s and loving metallica you never heard anything pre the Black Album except for once in a while one on the radio or on TV. You just never heard it. It was all nothing from Master Puppets, Ride the Lightning or Kill Them All. Just like it was hidden. You had to like go to record store to find it and hear it. And now I think that they've kind of changed the world so much by making that kind of music accessible to so many people. Now you could hear for whom the bell tolls on any sports game you can hear it in movies you can watch master of puppets on netflix shows exactly yeah right i think that they they changed the world and they made made the world safer that kind of music so i'm gonna be a jerk again so i i love ride the lightning when i was younger i would probably have said ride the lightning was my favorite metallica album as uh, now i would probably say master of puppets is my favorite metallica album they're both amazing as is injustice for all I think, to a lesser degree, Ride the Lightning suffers a little bit from the same thing that I think Kill 'Em All suffers from. The second side is not as good as the first side. Interesting. Trapped Under Ice is fine. It's good. I love Trapped Under Ice, yeah. I, I like it. I don't dislike it. Escape. Um, Metallica hates Escape, which Metallica is Metallica hates Escape, which is it's fascinating. Is that like they only played it once, and that was when they played Ride the Lightning front to back. They hate Escape, which is uh, is fascinating because that's a great record. It's a five-star record. A lot of people love it, but Metallica hates Escape. I mean, it's definitely different. It, it's like Metallica pretending to be Iron Maiden. Yeah. Yeah, it is different. Yeah. And, and they're also kind of coy about it. Like, you know, James thought he had to write at the last minute or just like they're they're kind of coy about why they don't like Escape, but it's it's clear they don't like it. Yeah, so. they don't like it. Again, I am not going to say any songs on Ride the Lightning are bad. I think it's a reasonable thing to say Ride the Lightning is effectively a perfect record. I do think that those two songs are a little weird. Weaker than it. Like everything on side one is like A plus plus plus. Side two, both of those songs are like probably A's, maybe A minuses. Here's my all right. Creeping Death, maybe the best Metallica. Like it's that song's freaking ridiculously good. I don't like Metallica instrumentals. I don't. I'm gonna say it right now. Yeah, you don't like Anesthesia, and you don't like uh, Call of the Cthulhu. Yeah, I think their instrumentals are a little bit boring. <laughs> now, John, I'm really curious because you're not a big instrumental guy do you do you, the last track it's about nine minutes long call of cthulhu what what were your thoughts maybe a teeny bit long for my taste but i i have no issues with their instrumental tracks <laughs> i i liked anastasia i i liked call of cthulhu. you're just a contrarian i, was... I hate you <laughs> I, no no i think you're just wrong 
on this particular issue, they, they play well together and it's good music. I don't know what your problem is. I think it's great. You know, I, I think that it's not the kind of thing I would have put on when I was initially getting into Metallica, but I think that having that on that record and like listening to it a few times and getting into it made me appreciate music like that more and made me love Call of Cthulhu. I could see this as being like a really good gateway for certain, for, for especially for kids like getting into Metallica and stuff, for listen instrumental music, classical influences. To me, they're just, there's just not that much of aesthetic interest going on to justify, you know, nine minutes of that particular instrumental. It works pretty nice. Like S and M I don't love, but it like Call of Cthulhu and S and M two works. That's pretty, a great opener. Well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'd say that's a really good context for it when you really emphasize the orchestral nature of it and stuff. But yeah, I don't know. I, I just have terrible taste in music. What can I say? <laughs> I Metallic instrumentals, that that's something that they did. They don't really did they have they done any like Post Black album. There is one on. uh, There's one on Death Magnetic, which is it's kind of like you know they're sort of like conscious like you know recreate the old sound decision that's near the end called Suicide and Redemption, and then they have I I guess James because does like kind of a yeah in it, but they do a uh, an instrumental cover of uh, their Good the Bad and the Ugly song, The Ecstasy of Gold, which is uh, where they they. Played, you know, themselves into, you know, do wow, wow, and that's, uh, <laughs> that works. But well, and that's their entrance, right? That's their historic, like, walk right, on music. Right, yeah. And uh, so their version of that's instrumental, too. But, um, but yeah, I think other than that, they haven't, uh, they've kind of been avoiding instrumentals since then. Yeah, yeah, but uh, they, they got my letters, I guess. They... I was just thinking, yeah, yeah, they listen to the fans there, yeah, right, yeah. No more instrumentals, yeah. I'm not here to say that Call of Cthulhu, or again, any song on Ride the Lightning is bad. It's just that, you know, we're dealing with uh, amazing music, some of which I think is less amazing than than, than others. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. All right, well, so let's make sure that no one who listens to this podcast has not heard at least something from Ride the Lightning when all is said and done. We're going to take one final listening break. This will be an opportunity to hear the extraordinary Ernest Hemingway informed for whom the bell tolls. Incredible, incredible stuff. So pause the podcast, play the link on the show notes, and we'll be back in just a minute. So one thing I learned actually, the melodic line at the beginning, that's Cliff, right? Playing the like the like really high distorted bass. Yeah, you know, you can watch there's a really old shoddy music video of uh, his other band Trauma playing at a like a high school battle of bands. And it's kind of like this psychedelic, like, you know, third rate Blue Easter cult type thing. And then, like, out of nowhere, he plays that. And it's just like, you know, that's, you know. <laughs> that's yeah, right? yeah. That's like uh, hearing that's like hearing Crazy Train in a Quiet Riot show before uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 right, Andy yeah, Rhodes exactly, joined yeah, Nazi. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, well, I think everybody agrees that For Whom to Bell Tolls is just a flipping banger. But, yeah, it's pretty interesting. It's a very unusual structure. I remember reading something about it's like 40% intro, and there's like a five-part riff cycle in there. And then there's like. They go through everything. It's like over two minutes before it gets to him singing. And then there's like 40% of him singing and then like, you know, 20% of the outro. It's it's a very oddly structured song to be as popular as it is. It's a completely different phenomenon. But one of my one of my favorite songs is Dream On by Aerosmith. And like you kind of spend all of Dream On waiting for the big high shrieking at the end. And the whole thing you just anticipate. And like the intro to For Whom the Bell Tolls is kind of like that. Where it just, it keeps going and you think it's about to start and it doesn't. And it keeps, you just builds up such a head of steam and excitement that when the, when that verse comes in it's just like ah yeah <laughs> <laughs> 
freaking cool. And John, you're you're a big fan of the Spanish Civil War, right? So you 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 like the you, huge <laughs> fan of the Spanish Civil War. One of my favorite civil wars. Yeah. If, if I if I had to pick, yeah. have you read the Hemingway? I I do like Hemingway, but this is one oh, that I have not read. That's book. great. That's so yeah, good, yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's really yeah. is just a flipping amazing book. I'm glad you mentioned that too because uh, I, I think there's this idea that Metallica can't be as smart as they're pretending to be. I remember I was talking with a friend about this. There's another music podcast where they're talking about the best songs inspired by books. And someone brought up that and, you know, like Metallica, like one for whom the bell tolls. And the other critic was like, oh, but those are like, you know, high school boy books. And that's like a high school boy interpretation. But like going over the song for the book, he captures the story like very well. And like, you know, some of like Hemingway's actual dialogue and like the scenes. And it's a it's a very smart look at that book. Like metal lyrics are often not the best part about it. <laughs> Right. Metal. And yeah, like they're they're not the best part about Metallica either, but they're really good. Like they're totally effective. Oh, yeah. And... yeah, Fade to Black and yeah. From the Bell Tolls. It's a it's a very smart song. Just like, you know, yeah, just capturing moments from that book. I think it does a great job of that. Oh, I completely agree. All right. Any other Ride the Lightning thoughts? Are you gonna listen to it again, John? Or uh... Yeah, John. <laughs> I mean, probably. We'll see. I've set myself this challenge of of listening to one new album every week this year. I think I might just continue down the Metallica discography and see what else I find. I wouldn't go too far down that. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, look, I've heard what you all are saying. I mean, they have some interesting failures along the way, but it's a... Yeah, I mean, I'd be curious to get John's take on Lulu. I was just thinking Lulu, which, which I am one of the only defenders of. You can count on one hand the amount of people who like that record, including the guy in your shirt, David Bowie, who apparently loved Lulu. But, um, That's what I heard. Yeah, I think it's such a, like cool oddball turn I, I love that like you know they're both when a lot of people are just sort of like rehashing their past glories both Lou Reed and Metallica were just like offending people and trying something completely different and new and it's not what I would recommend to a lot of people but as someone who likes kind of weird you know off-putting music <laughs> I think it's great <laughs> and John just to be clear so it is a collaboration between Lou Reed and Metallica that tells the same story as the Berg opera which is based on a play Lulu yeah yeah right it's a it's a very jarring lyrics and all these kind of weird you know transitions and some spoken word and uh yeah there's this beautiful last piece called junior dad that's uh you know it's it's kind of yeah that's the 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 one that people like that's yeah that's probably if there is a standard yeah (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) i'm I'm guessing there'll be like a revisionist like lulu is good amount of thing pieces a few years from now i mean i think for me the real problem is not that they're doing something ambitious which i think is great it's that i have very little faith in like late (laughs) late later period metallica well it's funny they get i mean this is totally fair but like you know when they do lulu people like oh god stick to the old stuff and then they try like you know like 72 seasons sounds like it's more of a thrash you know thing and people like but sounds just too much like they're trying to do the old oh yeah they're 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 fucked no matter what they do no matter what exactly absolutely But also, they're Metallica. Yeah, I was going to say, oh, poor Metallica. Yeah, oh, God, <laughs> I yeah. feel so bad for them. Poor guys, yeah. yeah. <laughs> How do yeah, they no, sleep? No, yeah, right, no success. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, I mean, at this point, we discussed the founding of Metallica. We've discussed the first two albums. I mean, I we basically discussed Metallica's entire career, right? Where This is this is where it ended. It's just <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, uh, Ride the Lightning, and then they, they rode off into the sunset. Too bad they broke up after that. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Obviously, today's discussion uh, got a little wide-ranging. I mean, we came up with some interesting later Metallica discussions, but uh, generally we covered just the very, very beginning of the Metallica story. John, I think this tells you something. If we've only covered the beginning of Metallica's history... (laughs) 
for, for the first time in our recording of this podcast, I'm not upset that we're going to have to come back to the topic. <laughs> so even though I'm not the world's biggest Metallica fan, that makes me pretty happy. You made me uh, happy. Yeah. We're going to have fun. I mean, come on, Master of Puppets ahead? Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah. whew. Classic. And Justice for All. I will be very curious to see your reaction and Justice for All as a, yeah. as a bass player. Oh, oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a whole other story. Yeah. There's some issues there. We won't get into that today, but there, there are some issues there. All right. Well, look, Ben, we're, we're, we're wrapping up. We've, we've kind of done our thing. I just want to say thank you so, so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks so much, guys. Yeah, it was great to be here. Yeah. Uh, you were awesome. Just thanks for taking the time. I mean, we've been talking for uh, quite a while. Oh, my really, pleasure. Dude, really appreciate it. Blast to talk to you guys. Love love talking about the Alco with y'all. Awesome. So we will put links in the show notes to the Metallica book so that everybody can order it. It is awesome. I strongly endorse it. Thank you. V- Viva Metallica. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Viva Metallica. Great talking to you guys. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, John. Thank you. Take care. You too. John, is it really possible? Is it already time to say goodbye to season number two of the Heavy Metal 101 podcast? It is time. Uh, Look, this is heartrending for me, but, but at least we had the just fucking extraordinary opportunity to talk to Ben Abitoff. Like, how cool was that? That was very cool. Yeah, he was great. Nice guy. Knows things? Knows things. Again, so nice. Do you know people can know a thing about a thing? Like, this, I was not aware of that. Clearly. I, my understanding is that you just make stuff up and present yourself. The term I like to use is expert. You call yourself an expert, and uh, everything just kind of falls into place from there. Uh, so, just to be clear, mm-hmm. you are, are a living example of everything having fallen into place. <laughs> yes. Got it. <laughs> Good. Okay, so look, if nothing else, we, we did accomplish something of value this year. I, you'll, you'll agree, right? We interviewed Ben Apatow. We learned about Metallica. Like, we did something. I think we did. That's, I think, more than anyone could possibly have expected, right? Certainly from me. <laughs> Let me let's be frank. I, I totally believe you. I totally do. Uh, all right, like, so meanwhile... How the hell do you plan to fill the empty, meaningless hours between signing off today and the start of season three? Uh, I think I'm going to go eat a sandwich. Oh, that's a really nice thing to do to fill empty, meaningless hours. I love food. Yeah, food is good. I, I'm going to sleep a lot. Hey, sleep is also good. Yeah, yeah. Sleep is great. I expect I'll spend some amount of time like forlornly staring out of windows. I mean, at some point you're going to write season three, right? <laughs> You know, actually, now that you bring it up, I suppose I will spend some amount of time writing a shit ton of podcast episodes, which is like my favorite thing to do. Oh, so this is really great news. I'm feeling better. You have you have actually made me feel better about this. This is going to be pretty cool. I think that's two times in the last three hours. So wow. I, uh, basically, we're done with positivity for the next several months. I feel like we're pretty much hitting maximum good vibes. All right. Well, look, the most important takeaway here for everyone is that we shall return stronger and probably stupider than ever. Season three of the Heavy Metal 101 podcast will be back in August when we shall pick up our narrative threads and tackle heavy metal's cultural high watermark in the mid through late 1980s. Now that's going to be fucking thrilling, right? Can't wait. Yeah, you told me when this started off that the mid to late 1980s was the thing you were most excited about, right? Yes. When we talk about metal bands like (laughs) Metallica. Dun, dun, dun. Which John loves. So I actually already do have basically all of season three sketched out, but nothing is actually 
written down yet. And so, if any of our listeners have any thoughts, suggestions, or things they passionately want to hear us yammer on about, we will certainly take that under advisement. So, John, with that in mind, could you remind everyone of the best ways they can go about contacting us? Of course. If you want to tell us what you think we should be talking about, you can send us an email via heavymetal101podcast at gmail.com. Of course, you can still leave us a voicemail at anchor.fm forward slash heavymetal101podcast. Waiting for that first one. It's going to be a great day. Somebody, it's going to make me so happy. And don't you want to make Eric happy, people? John did it twice. He knows what it's like. He's gotten that magical thrill. I can tell you all, it's worth it. It's worth it. <laughs> and of course, you can find us on social media on Facebook at Heavy Metal 101 Podcast, Twitter at Heavy underscore 101, and on Instagram at Heavy Metal 101 Podcast. So my goal for the offseason is for us to get to, I'm, I'm thinking, 10 million listeners. I suspect that this will not be possible without a whole lot of help from our friends, right? I don't know what our current listenership is. Uh, it's less than 10 million. Okay. Yes, yes. So, as such, if you'd like to get us to 10 million listeners, please don't hesitate to let other people know, either via your own social media posts or through a vast array of five-star rankings and or verbose, glowing reviews. Any and all of those things will put a smile on both my and John's face. And that is something that is just a beautiful thing to behold. John, this is it. Parting is such sweet sorrow, but the time has come. Is there anything else you'd like to say to our beloved listeners before we sign off for summer breaksies? Don't hurt yourselves. Be safe. Remember to use sunscreen. <laughs> Some really valuable advice, courtesy of John. Look, we love you all. We appreciate you. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back before you know it. John, could you say goodbye to the nice people? Goodbye, nice people. Bye-bye, everybody!